0: Well, a couple weeks ago I shared with all of you the most dangerous thing that I've ever done in my life, and I would like to take that back because I've had an experience that I think might actually be the most dangerous thing that I've ever done in my life. Um, It's the Christmas season, and if you're a good husband, if you're a good dad, then you are getting up on a ladder and you are putting Christmas lights out on your house. Or if you're a smart dad, you figure out ways to put it off and put it off and put it off until you don't have to. So I get outside and uh, realize I don't necessarily have a ladder that's going to get the job done fully so that I can get all the lights up, and so I very sketchily do what I can on my little A-frame ladder. And then I call Jacob. If you have a friend named Jacob, most of the time Jacobs have ladders. That's uh... oh, a... That Sorry. Sorry. He hasn't heard that his whole life. I'm sorry, dude. I hope we're still friends after this. Anyways, I called Jacob legitimately. I borrowed his ladder. It was an actual ladder, way bigger than mine. It was pretty substantial. And we got the job done, but I did not want him to leave the house before I was done because I'm a pretty big dude, and a roof that has a pitch like this suddenly goes to this when I get on it, and I thought I was trying to climb Mount Everest, and I didn't realize that the shingles on our houses, man not as strong as you would hope they would be. And so, uh, you know, they shift around and uh, a little bit scary. So that is the new most dangerous thing that I've ever done. I feel like the occupational hazards as a dad, as a husband have gone through the roof. So me and my wife are going to have a meeting after church today, figure out how we can kind of balance this out. I'll let you know how it goes. If I don't show up next Sunday, you'll know how it went. So. We are finishing off dangerous prayers. And so we started off with this dangerous prayer of search me and how intrusive that feels when we ask God to search us, when we ask God to expose the sin in our lives, to identify it so that we can give it to him. Last Sunday, Jacob preached a message on change me. And certainly that's a dangerous prayer because so many times when God identifies a sin in our lives, we just want to sit there and not actually deal with it. And so when God actually changes us, It's absolutely dangerous. And then today, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. One of the most dangerous pieces of scripture in the Bible, if we take it, if we apply it. Certainly, one of the most dangerous prayers that we can pray, and that is, send me. So, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, if you have a church edition ESV English Standard Version Bible, that's going to be on page 445. Go ahead and turn there. We are going to be here all morning long. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now we read that starting off, and we think, All right, King Uzziah is dead. Let's get on to the meat of the story. This really is not that big of a deal. Let's get to the good stuff But what we see here is this really kind of sets the stage for the rest of the story. You see, when we cross-reference this verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we see King Uzziah. We see his reign. We see his ruling over Judah. And what we see is that King Uzziah started off strong. King Uzziah actually honored God. And as he honored God, things went really well for King Uzziah. And then we see that King Uzziah starts to disregard God's holiness. And as a result of that, King Uzziah gets leprosy and King Uzziah dies. What do we see in the midst of all this? What do we see through Isaiah? What do we see through King Uzziah? We see our first point this morning, and that is that we are not on God's level. We are absolutely not on God's level. Now, growing up in football, growing up in the early days of the Internet and Xbox Live, get on my level was a saying that you would say when you completely obliterated somebody. Either on the football field, hopefully you got to say it to them, get on my level, like get off the ground, I just ran over you, chunk. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to happen again. Um, hopefully they weren't saying that to you. Or online, Xbox Live, whatever it is. You might hear your kids say it as they're playing Fortnite. Get on my level. I just wrecked your dome. I just took you out of this game. And the whole purpose behind all of that is that these people, they're clearly beneath us. But what we see today through King Uzziah, mainly through Isaiah, is that we are completely not on God's level. Four reasons why we are not on God's level. And all of those answers come in verses 1 through 7. Why we aren't on God's level, number one, is that when earthly circumstances change, God remains. When earthly circumstances change, God remains. We see King Uzziah dies. And what does, God, or what does Isaiah do? In uncertain circumstances, Isaiah looks up. And who does Isaiah find when he looks up? Somebody who is not on his level. He doesn't look from side to side. He doesn't try to go open the newspaper. I guess back then it would have been a scroll. He doesn't turn to the latest news station. No, when things are uncertain, Isaiah looks up. So should we. In the days that we're living in, when tomorrow you don't know what variant of the coronavirus is going to be new, when we don't know what leadership in our country is going to be enforcing or not enforcing or about or against or whatever it is, when we don't know what's going to be on the news station, when we don't know what countries around us are going to be planning against us or for us or with us, maybe we stop looking side to side and getting all of our news and all of our information from these places that are not bad sources of information, but if that's the first place we go, they were never designed take that seat. They were never designed to take that role in our lives, and we wonder why we're so full of fear and anxiety, and that's when things get a little uncertain. We completely forget about God, but what we see Isaiah do is when Isaiah dies, when things are a little shifty, like the shingles on my roof, Isaiah looks up, and he finds God. In the midst of a leadership shift, God remains. I think that would be really good for us to know as well. It doesn't matter what administration is in the White House. It doesn't matter what administration was in the White House. You know what else? It doesn't matter what administration will be in the White House. This might be hard to believe. It doesn't matter what China plans to do. It doesn't matter what Russia plans to do. It doesn't matter what the news stations want to communicate about what's actually taking place in the world. Because before the ruler of China ever took his throne, God was on his throne. God knew him before he was born. same goes for Russia. The same goes for here in the United States and any other king, any other government, any other nation, any other place in the world. God knew. He let it happen. And he'll use it for his own good in due time. When things were uncertain, where did Isaiah find God? He found God on his throne and in control high and lifted up above it all knowing exactly what was to come why is god not on our level physically he's higher he's above it all he is literally above us all powerful all knowing and all present isaiah 2 real quick above him stood the seraphim each had six wings With two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. All right, I just want you to know that these are not your ordinary, average angels, okay? This isn't the chubby little baby flying around in a diaper on Valentine's Day, shooting people, trying to make them fall in love, okay? There are multiple kinds of angels, and there is a hierarchy of them in something called angelology when it comes to heaven. But I just want you to know That when you get to heaven, after you put your faith in Jesus, and by grace you are saved, and you get to heaven, and you see one of these bad boys, you're like, hold up. That's bad to the bone right there. I thought it was a bunch of little chubby babies flying around here making people fall in love. Is that only on February 14th? Does it work the same here? I'm not really sure. But this is a seraphim. And literally, this is a superhuman, supernatural, perfect creature created by God. And it's super powerful. Seraphim in Hebrew means flames, all right? Cupid has no flames. These things are literally on fire. And I think flames are cool. Maybe it's because I grew up in the 90s. But flames are cool. And these guys are covered with them. I just needed you to know what angels actually look like. This is just one of them. The rest of them actually look a lot creepier. We'll go over that some other time. Don't want to scare you away yet. So what are these seraphim doing? We see that in Isaiah 6.3. Actually, Yeah, I just read about the seraphim, Isaiah 6, 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, talking about God. The whole earth is filled of his glory. So why are we not on God's level? Reason number two, we are not on God's level because he is holy. It literally means that God is set apart. He is absolutely morally pure. That means He is perfect. He is sin-free. He is all light. There is not a speck of darkness on Him. He is absolute perfection to the point that these absolutely perfect superhuman angelic beings covered in bad-to-the-bone flames are humbling themselves before God in worshiping Him. God is holy. As we will see here in a little bit, we are not holy. Reason number three why we are not on God's level is the earth is filled with his glory. At this time, the glory of God went from when the Hebrews left Israel to a cloud during the day that would shade them, that would tell them where to go, and they would follow the cloud through the wilderness. At night, it would turn into a pillar of fire. It would keep them safe, and it would light the way for them. At the time, Isaiah writes this, the glory of God has gone from the wilderness into the temple. And what the earth being filled with His glory is foretelling is a day when the glory of God will fill every inch of the earth. That means there's no pain, there are no tears, and there, are no, there is no sin anymore. This points to a new creation. This points to the total reign of God. This points to the total victory of Jesus when we spend an eternity with the Father. The earth is filled with His glory. And so what these seraphim are flying around with two wings, flying two wings over their faces, two wings with their feet, is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And certainly it foretells of a day that is to come, but it also foretells of the Christmas story. When the Son of God would be sent down from heaven and someone, the person of Jesus, would go from fully God to now fully God and fully man. And why did Jesus need to be born? Why did Jesus need to come? It was to right the wrongs that we have filled the earth with. See, God fills the earth with his glory. But we, as sinful, broken, fallen creation, we fill the earth with something else. And that's sin. And that sin needs to be atoned for. So Jesus comes down to right those wrongs isaiah 6 4 through 5 and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke some of you guys are like this is a pretty fantastical vision that isaiah is having maybe it's because the house was filled with smoke but i guarantee you it's a different kind of smoke entirely Verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Fourth and final reason why we are not on God's level is because woe is us. And I'm not talking like, woe is us, dude. Okay, that's W-O-A-H. I'm talking about woe is us. Like, Hold up. Slow this horse down. Woe, W-O-E, is us. And we see in the whole book of Isaiah, in the first six chapters, Isaiah has not said a single word. And the first words out of Isaiah's mouth are, Woe is me, for I am lost. What does it mean that he is lost? What does it mean that he has unclean lips? What does it mean that he lives amongst a people that have unclean lips? It means that he realizes that he is sinful. And he realizes his sin when he looks at the perfection of God. He realizes that it's not just him that is sinful as he looks at a perfect heavenly father. He he realizes it is everyone around him. And it's only when we look at something that is so purely good that we see how purely wicked we can be how purely sinful and how purely broken we are. I remember about 12 years old, uh, me and my mom um, just got our first place together. And it was a little house. It was the first place that we owned. And I say we very loosely. I didn't pay for anything. I was 12 years old. What do you expect from me? I knew a lot about Pokemon and how to survive sixth grade. That was about all I was focused on at that point in life. But we moved into this house in East Plano. It was a little house, two bedroom, two bath, and we were just so excited. Just super proud of my mom for making this happen. And About to start a new season of life. And so what were we going to do? I don't know about you, but the HGTV that has taken over my life, you get your own place, you paint it. It's the first thing that takes place, first thing that happens. And so, as you would do in uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, You know, agreeable gray was not the color yet, but white or off-white was the color. And so we went to Home Depot, because I don't think Loves existed yet either. And we went to the paint aisle, and we're looking at all the paints. And me and my mom are sitting there, and she's got, you know, just such a tasteful design eye. It took a while. And we're sitting there, and we're looking at all these swatches of paints. I didn't even know there were this many colors. Maybe because I'm like halfway colorblind. We didn't know that yet either. But we're looking at these colors and she's like, "You know what? I think we're going to paint the house white. It's going to give it this nice clean, airy feeling." And so we are looking we we move from all the colors in the rainbow over to the whites. And literally the whites are like their whole own section. I actually, boom, this is every color of white that we probably looked at, but it probably doesn't represent all of them. And what I realized is that all whites are not created equal. There are temperatures, there are Kelvin units, that's a temperature of the white, it gets really advanced, it's like super advanced later on, interior design, doctorate level of course. Um, There are so many different colors of white, but something that I realized is that no matter what white we looked at, none of the whites we looked at compared to another white, and that white was ultra bright white. I'm sure you've used it when it comes to baseboards or when it comes to trim work in your houses, but When I was looking at all these, I was like, man, these are not created equal by any means. And I think this is kind of the same thing that Isaiah is going through when he looks at God and this vision that he has. It doesn't matter how good Isaiah is, his goodness will never be compared or match up to the brightness, to the perfectness, to the holiness of God. And when Isaiah thinks about the people that he lives with, surely there is no way that these people can live up, can match with the holiness, with the goodness of God. Because if God is a white, God is ultra bright white. And I'm not just talking about ultra bright white. I'm talking about ultra bright white with the shades open, the blinds open on a sunny day and it hits it just right. And you walk into that one room of the house and you can't see for the next 30 minutes. That's the perfection of God. If you were a color of paint on a wall, it breaks down eventually. Not everything's perfect but he realizes the sinfulness of his own life. He realizes the sinfulness of his own people, and it's only when we see pure good that we realize that we are purely sinful, and it's only when we realize that we are purely sinful that we realize we need atonement. Isaiah 6, 6-7 through 7. Then the one seraphim flew to me, this is Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Second point this morning is that regardless of sinfulness, regardless of brokenness, regardless of how our whites don't match up to God's, God makes a way for us. God makes a way for us. We see that. We see that once Isaiah realizes and confesses his sin, God does all the work from there on out. We see that in 6 through 7. Isaiah did not do a few things that would have been necessary for him to have earned his atonement, for him to have owned his, earned his purification. He did not prep the altar in order to earn it. He did not provide the sacrifice that would have been burning on that altar, whether it be incense or an animal or anything else, to earn it. He didn't promise God that he would do anything, that he would be anybody for him in order to earn it. What does this show us? It shows us that God made the way, not Isaiah. And the same is true for us. We don't try to be really, really good people in order to earn God's love, in order to earn our salvation. We don't try to strive for perfection in order to earn it. No matter how hard we try, we will always be just a couple shades off from God. I don't care if it's the greatest person you've ever met in your entire life. For all have sinned. For all fall short of the glory of God. It is not on us. We don't do a bunch of good things to earn it. We don't promise God that we will change to earn it. We don't work ourselves up emotionally to earn it. And we don't promise God that we will do great things to earn it. Why is that? Simple. It's the same for us that it was for Isaiah. There is nothing that we can do to earn it. God makes the way for us. And he did that through Jesus. So we ask ourselves this question. Alright, I get that. But what's with the coal? Alright, this superhuman angelic being takes a piece of coal from the altar. First of all, the superhuman angelic being used tongs to take it from the altar. I think at that point, if I was Isaiah, I'd be thinking, okay, something real sketchy is about to happen. I know that's really hot. And he's coming to me and I don't have any tongs anywhere around me. And if he's about to touch me with that, it's going to hurt. What we see is that the, the coal that the seraphim takes from the altar and as he goes to Isaiah and he presses it on his lips, that it represents God's removal of Isaiah's guilt. And in that moment, Isaiah receives God's mercy and God's grace. His sin was the problem, but God provided the solution. In that moment, Isaiah was atoned for. He was purified. He was put back in right relationship with God. And it didn't matter what he had done before this, because now God had done the work to put him back in right relationship with him. When it comes to sin, atonement is always needed sin always requires atonement and for us this purification takes place in jesus jesus fully god fully man comes down from heaven born in a manger lives a completely perfect life and ends up on a cross to be the perfect sacrifice for us and just as like when that coal touches isaiah's lips in that moment he is purified His iniquity, his unrighteousness, his sin, his brokenness is transferred and he is made pure in the eyes of God, put in right relationship with God. When Jesus took the cross for us, the same thing happened. See, Jesus took the cross for you knowing every sin that you would ever commit. And he still chose to die on the cross for you. And when he took that cross, what happened is we receive his righteousness when we make him our Lord and Savior, when we trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And you know what Jesus took on? He took on the sin of the world. That means my sin. That means everything that I've ever done that would go against God. And trust me, that is not a pretty picture. But it's not just my sin, it's your sin as well. And Jesus takes that and He says here, I will die with this, the death that you deserve to die if you're going to be made right with God. And I will be the perfect sacrifice. And in return, you know what you can have? My perfection. Certainly not fair. But shows the love of the Father for us, His children. Who were broken so that we could be made new, sinful so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be restored. Jesus is our purification. Isaiah 6 8, we close out with this, and oh man, it's about to get good. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah, Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. See, when we see God for who He is, and we see ourselves for who we really are, and for what we've done, when we realize that God's mercy and God's grace have made a way for us, just as Isaiah, as he was purified, he received God's mercy and grace, and he was then about to be sent out to share that message. And when we hear that God has a purpose for us and that he is inviting us into something bigger than ourselves, then we should have one response. And that response should always be, send me. When God calls, we answer. Third and final point this morning, when God calls, we answer. What do we take away from this? One of the takeaways is, God was already asking. Isaiah is tuned in. God is still asking that question. Who will go for us? Whom shall I send? We need to tune out the distractions. If Isaiah tuned into God and that was a question, and we tune into God today, and it's the same question for us, we need to get rid of the things that are keeping us from hearing God, that are keeping us from listening to God. We need to put them aside. We need to go vertical before we ever go horizontal. This needs to be our primary source of information. We need to be focused on this before we ever turn to anything to our sides because when we turn to things at our sides, we have a tendency to put them up on God's throne. And that's called idolatry. So let's dethrone those idols. Let's put God where He needs to be and let's go to Him. But then we ask the question, who will go for us? Send me, send me to do what? What? I know we have some people that aren't just down for whatever in here, okay? I know we got about one-third of us, and we like to have a good time. I see all y'all, okay? But I know that we got about two-thirds of the people in here that are like, hold up, I'm not just signing this. I'm not just not going to look into this. I need to know what God's going to have me do. And if we look at Isaiah, Isaiah doesn't pause. He doesn't say, but first, God, I need to know exactly what you want me to do. Where am I going to live? What's my salary going to be? Am I going to have friends? Are you going to provide a love in my life? No, Isaiah doesn't stop to ask God questions. He obeys and he obeys immediately. So what does it mean to be sent? What does it mean to say, send me? It means that I am down for whatever God wills me to do. And we need to be down for whatever God wills us to do. And that is regardless of how much sense it makes. That is regardless of how able we are to do it in our own strength because it's not about the power within us. It's about the void that the Holy Spirit fills to get the job done that God is calling us into. It's about living in the Holy Spirit, not operating out of our own strength. It's not about how scared we might be because I guarantee you if you are living a life that God says, Whom shall I send and you say send me? There will not be a moment in your life where you are not scared. But in that fear, in that feeling of being caught up in something so much bigger than you, you have God to lean into. You have God to equip you. You have God to sustain you. It doesn't matter how out of control we feel. Whatever it is, regardless of anything else, we go and we do it. And we do it wherever God wills us to do it. That may be across the sea, that may be across the street, or that may be across the table in your own homes. God doesn't call everybody to be an international missionary. God doesn't call everybody to start a church. God doesn't call everybody to move away from home. But God calls everybody to do something somewhere for somebody. And so what does that mean? To whomever God calls us to do it for And this is regardless of socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter how much money they make if they don't have the same lifestyle as you. It doesn't matter what race they are. It doesn't matter what gender they are or what gender they identify as. It doesn't matter what political party they subscribe to. And it doesn't matter what sexual orientation they would say is their own. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man, that is Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. So church, let's get up And let's go to the lost. Let's stop hanging out with people that look just like us. What the heck happened when the church only hung out with the church? When Christians only spent time with Christians? What happens if we live lives like Jesus and we actually go to sinful people that aren't like us? That don't have the same beliefs. That don't have the same orientations that we do. Guess what? They're not supposed to, because they don't follow the same Jesus that we follow. But if we're supposed to be Jesus in their life, that means that we love them when we serve them. And we bring the message of grace and mercy, just like Isaiah took to his people. And guess what? Those people didn't always want to hear it. But we take that to the people around us, and we love them. No matter how different they are from us. We share the message of hope, of peace, of love and grace that God can take people as broken as us. Remember, we were not always shades of white. We were in that weird paint section of Lowe's that nobody shops that on a clearance rack. People just returned it. They don't want to paint their houses with that. Put it on the wall. That's a weird color. I'm taking it back. That was us. Until Jesus got hold of us. So let's take the gospel. Let's take it to the people around us, no matter wherever it is, no matter whatever it is God calls us to, whomever He calls us to, and let us not delay. When we say, send me, we write a blank check to God. We say, here I am, here's my life. Whatever you want to do with it, God, I pray you will do with it. And I'm not here to say that if you follow God's will for your life, that it will be easy, that He's going to bless you with happiness and health and prosperity, and you're going to get whatever you want to get because that's not what the Bible says. In fact, when we look at Isaiah's life in verses 9 through 10, what do we see happens? Isaiah's people turned their back on Isaiah. He was a man of unclean lips that was purified. His people, not every single one of them, turned around to see God. And as he preached a message of mercy and grace, as he experienced when he encountered God in this vision, his people turned their back on him. I'm here to tell you that if you're following God's will, wherever it is, whatever it is, to whomever it is, it will not be easy, but you will be sustained through it. And there is nothing sweeter than following and living inside the will of God. And I don't care what it is He's called you to do, He will sustain you to do it as long as He has you do it. So who shall I send? Who will go for us? Let's tune into that. And I pray when God asked that question of you in your life, that Asante Church would stand up and they would say, here I am, send me. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we need you. Thank you that you took us, that you made us clean that when we put our faith in you, we are no longer seen as dirty, broken, unrighteous people, but that we are seen as righteous, not because of anything that we could do, but because of everything that you did. Thank you that we inherit your righteousness when we become yours. Around this church this morning, maybe you were in a place where you've be able to, you would not be able to say that you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus. If that's you this morning and you realize that you are broken, that your life does not look as God intended it to, that you are sinful, that there are things in your life that are keeping you from living out the will and the presence of the Father, keeping you out of right relationship with Him. And I want you to know that you are loved. I want you to know that you are so welcomed here. I also want you to ask that question of, God, are you calling me into relationship with you this morning? That may be the case. And if that is you, then the only thing that you need to do is pray to God. Ask for forgiveness of your sin. Trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, to be your personal Lord. That means your master, to be your Savior. It is by grace, the grace of God, through the work of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead on the third day that we have victory over sin, victory over death, and victory over the enemy. And it is not without Jesus that that happens. So maybe today is the day that you put your faith in Jesus for the first time. And if that's you, I pray that you would be bold enough to let us know on your Connect card so that we can walk alongside you as you figure out what this relationship with Jesus looks like. And then there's us that have put our faith in Jesus. And God, we say that we are not on your level. But God, we thank you for making a way for us. Jesus, I pray that we would hear your call. When you ask, whom shall I send, that we would say, here I am, send me. And God, that you would strengthen us and that you would empower us in the Holy Spirit to live out life as the sent ones. And Jesus, this morning, as we've taken up this offering, we say that as Asante Church, we stand beside those who have said, send me, I will go. And God, we support them with the resources that you have entrusted with us in our giving. God, and we pray for those in our midst this morning, who will be sent Once, whether it's across the table, across the street, across state lines, or whether it's across the sea. God, I pray for a realization that you are calling us to live sent. And I pray that as a church, we would be able to equip and encourage those who are living sent every time we meet. God, we're not on your level, but you made a way. You not only made a way, but you called us into something so much bigger, and we thank you for that.